Hey, Duncan. Hey, James. How are you, dude? I'm well, thanks. How are you handling everything? Yeah, like sort of in the groove of remote working. <laughs> and no, I don't think anyone wants this COVID stuff, but like it's been like six or seven or eight weeks. I don't even know that I've been working remotely now. So it's, yeah. it's really well and truly the new sort of normal, I suppose. Yeah. Well, like just on that point, um, I think something I read recently said it best when the old calendar was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday through to Sunday. Yeah. The new calendar is today yesterday tomorrow like everything has just blended together like i don't even know when it's the weekend anymore mm. yeah it's, it's funny um so i have a sort of business that looks in podcasting space um and one of the things is the search traffic that we get uh so they might type in best episodes for joe rogan or something and there was a really clear pattern much more traffic on monday to friday and much less on the weekend and then in COVID, it's just flat. <laughs> there's, no, there's no difference. <laughs> so, so there's this huge, like, sort of weekly, sort of, I don't even want to call it, like, seasonality is the wrong word because it's not seasons, but, like, you know, weekly pattern. And then there's no pattern. <laughs> well, it's, so, yeah. it's true. I missed my commute time now. Like, oh, <laughs> I, totally. I, I don't have time to myself anymore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so welcome to Cloud Streaks. So this is a podcast where Duncan and I, who've been lifelong friends, like to find interesting topics uh, for us to discuss. Um, so today is kind of a, a milestone because while it's not the end of the series, we have reached the final article in Tim Urban's Wait But Why um, series on, I can't even remember what it's called. The Story of Us. The Story of Us, thank you. Um, so he's released nine articles over ten, the course of... Ten chapters. Ten chapters over the course of, what, like the last 12 months? No, um, six, I reckon. And I think he mentioned somewhere that he's got two more to go. But we're up to the last one in the current series called A Sick Giant. Um, and so for anyone who has or even hasn't been following, because it's pretty hard to follow all the stuff that Duncan and I talk about, um, we're now at a point where he tries to bring together all of these different views or explorations that... Uh, we have in terms of who we are as people, why we think the way we do, uh, and what's happening in the current political landscape. So it's going to get political. It's going to be pretty interesting, but like, you know, let's just give it a go. Mm. Yeah, the last one. So let's have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first thing I wanted to kind of like start off with is my thinking across this series is like, as a, as a natural um, tendency, like, I know I think in things in terms of good versus bad. Like, when I think of a certain president, I will think bad. If I think of a certain um, ideology, I'll think good or bad. Um, and when I look at it in this series, when Tim Urban talks about higher mind versus fire mind um, being this good and bad kind of, like, way of thinking, I think it's not that simple. It's not that binary. It's... It's really when you think about it, well, we have these two parts of the mind because we need them. You know, we need the fire mind to help us stay alive, to survive, even in a world where there's an abundance. And we need the higher mind for us to think more rationally and to, for us to, um, you know, evolve beyond our constrained environment. So it might not necessarily be about good versus bad, but about what's in balance and out of balance. Does that make sense? Not really. Okay. I'm not sure. So, so yeah, what are you referring to? Is, how does this relate to the sick giant? What is 2D? So, to me, like, um, I honestly don't understand why the primitive mind, so that's the lower mind, um, really helps us stay alive. I think it, it actually is not required for us to stay alive and is a kind of legacy of our past, of evolution, that did serve us, I don't know, when we were more primitive, uh, like whatever, you know, a monkey or something. But now today really is more far more detrimental than not um and i think that humans sort of start off with you know not fully formed brains and, and far more primitive minds uh, james and i were on the phone on the weekend and one of his daughters where they're walking past the sort of checkout at a, a, a shops and there's lollies there and then was grabbing the lollies and i think this is the primitive mind being like "Ooh, lolly you know um and I, i'm thankful that i'm no longer just run by my environment and then it's not just like, ooh, berries, eat all the berries you can, you know. Um, yeah. And so to me, I'd much rather, uh, you know, have the higher mind running mm. the show, not not having this constant battle between the two. Right. So, like, this is a, this, to me is a great example of thinking good versus bad and, and balance, out of balance. So the way you've described it um, in, my, in my understanding is that you don't really see a use for the fire mind anymore. So you would probably say, say it would 
tend, it would lend to suggest that you would say anyone who thinks with their fire mind is bad. Well, not like the thinking with the fire mind is a ba- fire mind is a bad way of thinking. Thinking with just the high mind is a good way of thinking. Um, and so, what I'm trying to, I guess, um, explore here is that it's not about and 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 this is what Tim Berman says. He said it's not about whether you're thinking with the higher mind or the fire mind. It's whether you are letting the fire mind control your actions or whether your higher mind is in control of your actions. And it's kind of like got the, the fire mind, um, you know, on a leash, so to speak. I think the fire mind is necessary for us to survive and operate as human beings. Now, we can go down this rabbit hole, but like if you take away the fire mind, I think you take away all of the foundational um, elements that are required for us to get, I'd say, maybe up to step two in the hierarchy of needs. Right. First one is physiological safety. Um, uh, and then the second one, I think, is uh, what's the second level? I've already forgotten. But like the first one is all of the things you need to survive. Right. So h- how are you going to make sure that you've got shelter? How are you going to make sure that you've got food? How are you going to make sure you're going to stay healthy? This to me is something while we can think about this consciously and constructively, I think there is still a lot of the programming being run in our subconscious layer that we don't even fully realize or appreciate. Now, I can give you examples of like, well, what happens when uh, you're walking across the road and suddenly a car pulls around the corner and, you know, your instinct kick in and you jump off the road. But um, that might not be suitable um, to extrapolate out to a population's level. But I'm still thinking here that you need both. You just need to have find the right balance for you to be able to operate uh, effectively? I'd look at it differently. So the sort of primitive mind is run by programs that are hardwired in. So for instance, we didn't used to die of eating too much. We died of starvation. So there's no real off switch for food. Just eat as much as you can. Mm. And so to me, yes, you need the psychological needs to lower, which is water, food, sleep, etc. I'd argue that, for instance, in, in the past where you needed to step into danger... And you needed to go and whatever, fight the other tribe or, or an animal. Now, the best way to get food is to cooperate with others and to be good at the office so that you have money to go to the supermarket. So I don't understand, you know, safety needs. There used to be, yeah, you need to defend your tribe. Now we need to make sure we get on well and we don't aggravate each other and cause each other to go on protests and then whip, his, whip ourselves up into some frenzy. So mm. I really don't sort of see why the optimal strategy these days is this hardwired, you know, like lower mind, like eat yeah. everything you can, you know, be jealous of this person, blah, blah, blah. I think the higher mind works well in a modern, you know, first world country where all of the things that used to worry us, like not enough food, you know, people coming around to kill us, etc. Those are now driven more by people who have not control of their lower mind mm. than, than higher mind. Well, it's correct. And I think maybe um, what's at stake here is um, like what I'm trying to say is I, I, I don't I understand that we want to have the higher mind running the show and we would uh, we would all stand to gain or benefit from a society that operates at the at the higher level. But what I'm trying to do here is not throw the baby out with the bathwater when I say there are there's still some utility in having this fire mind, um, you know, operating within inside ourselves. So maybe like if I can try and think of some analogy, like think of a sauna, right? You go into a sauna and it's and it's nice and warm and cozy, uh, and then someone just comes in and just pours all of this water on top of the rocks and it just starts getting way too hot. And you're like, fuck, 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 no, no, no. Uh, you don't say throw out all the rocks, you know. You just say like um, open the door, let some heat out, so that it gets back to this level state. So what I'm saying here is that I think the fire mine is this, you know, this temperature in the room that we've got to make sure it doesn't get out of control by, you know, dumping too much water on it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, kind of. Look, I think maybe if it's all right, we'll, we'll sort of put it to the context of what Tim has here, which is to do with politics. And his articulation of what the lower primitive mind is and the high mind is in this. So one is, you know, tribalism. There's the red team and the green team or blue team, whatever. And the, the other one is... Well, what is the best thing for everyone? So despite there being two teams in whatever, the, you know, the left and the right, you're still part of the same country. And so you've basically hopefully trying to see what, what happens here. So the primitive mind would be you divide 
and the higher mind, I think, would be uniting and that there are more than one way to try to help, you know, whether it's free trade or fair trade or whether it's more taxes or less taxes or whatever it is, you know, more immigration or less immigration. So to me, um, I think that what he's sort of getting to is that the primitive mind is easier to appeal to, um, to divide, and this is what happens a lot in politics, than it is to unite, i.e. the higher mind, and that this is leading to part of the division that is occurring in the world at the moment, and this is net, you know, making the world worse than it, than it was. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, yeah, so th- I agree, this is what, um, you know, the sticking point that we're trying to get to here in terms of, like, so how is this all playing out in the political spectrum, and what is it that we're seeing here when we uh, witness a, a deeper polarization of different political parties or ideologies. So I agree that um, what's happening here appears to be the um, the recession back into more um, tribalistic views, which is driven by our survival instinct, which is what Tim Irvin describes as the fire mind. Um, and so what? how do we explain this? How do we actually try to better understand that? And so the first thing... Um, he the first tool I guess in his box was this idea of seeing things in 3D. So you can remember the 2D, which is basically the the fire mind all the way up to the high mind, and then there's the third dimension, which is the emergence tower. So how do we think as individuals? How do we think in groups? And then how do we think in like larger communities, countries, etc., um, etc. Et so what I think is important to understand here is like what you were talking earlier about you know we existed as human beings for hundreds of thousands of years and a large part of that were in tribes and as part of being in tribe there was a lot of scarcity you know food was not guaranteed you didn't have a lot of um shelter you you didn't know if you were going to be safe one day to another and so that's why i like in my understanding we developed this tribalistic mentality was because there wasn't enough to go around so we had to fight with neighboring tribes in order to ensure our own survival so this to me is why we have this program in us today even though there is no longer any scarcity of food or um, supply but this is why it's easier to i guess stoke the flames of this particular mindset to drive people further apart from each other because it goes back to this more tribalistic mentality so I think just to zoom out from a sort of structural perspective, many, many measures, and this is why this article is great. It's easy to say, well, it, it, you know, has polarization gotten worse? Mm. You know, it's us versus them. And, or is it just people are big beat up? Is the media saying it and it's not actually a fair reflection of reality? And Tim goes through data point after data point that says that it's been getting worse for sort of 30 years in the US. Um, and... I think that you know his data points create a broad and you know reasonable picture of the overall. It's not perfect, but it's not just one you know data mining thing. And I think he's saying that one of the key reasons that this has occurred is the way that people think, and that people have effectively become more primitive mind biased. So if there's a continuum, one end is tribalism, you know, not wanting to you know confirmation bias. Uh, this is my team and I'll back them, you know, loyalty, blind loyalty. And the other end is trying to better yourself, you know, thinking to try to understand why someone else might have a different point of view to you. And that effectively, the, the you know, in the last 30 years, the US has gone backwards. And before that, it was sort of going forwards. And this is one of the drivers of why there's more polarization. So that, and I think there's a number of structural reasons why this has occurred um, and why I could sort of turn around. But I think it's fair, and I think that his key point is that if people become more aware of the way they think, then it's not what you think, it's how you think, then we'll be able to hopefully turn the tide. And so I think this is his core contribution, which is taking these 10 chapters, to be able to explain the concept of the higher mind, the lower mind, and why you think in different ways, like thinking like a zealot versus thinking like a scientist. And if we can help people just be aware of this, then they'll realize, oh God, I was thinking like a zealot. And that's probably not great for me or others. And that this can help change the tide, which if it continues this way, will end in like civil war or something. Yeah. It's not what you think, how you think. I like that, Duncan. Good one. That's a Tim <laughs> Urban quote. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so you said he, he goes through a number of different, uh, uh, you know, varying explanations as to why this divide is, um, has been growing over the last uh, 40, 50 years. 
Uh, and so one of the more obvious ones that he uses is this idea of the common enemy. Um, you know, like he had a, um, an illustration that talks about, you know, back in um, World War II when we had uh, Nazi Germany, it was very easy for everyone to rally up um, together against, um, you know, what we would identify as the bad guys because, well, genocide is very easy for everyone to agree. Yep, that's bad. Um, and so once that uh, had run its course, everyone um, no longer had this common enemy. And so over time, they start to see differences among themselves. Uh, and so like, um, yeah, if you've read the article, you'll, you'll know which, which um, cartoon I'm talking about. But basically, the circle that is, you know, Western civilization starts to break apart. And so what we're seeing here is, um, you know, a society, it would seem that runs on, you know, liberty and freedom, when it doesn't have a common enemy, and it doesn't have a society that operates consistently at the higher mind level, it will naturally think back into more fire mind tribalistic tendencies to sow division amongst itself. It's interesting. It's I mean, I, I didn't personally get that read out of it. Um, so to me, there are different times. And, and I think one of the sort of key things is just, is, you know, opportunity or basically are people's lives better generation on generation? So do you have a better life than your parents? Um, and that's the sort of core social contract that is signed. And I think that this was not necessarily fulfilled in the US. So for instance, this is the first generation where like life expectancy goes down, income in real terms is, is lower, etc. in the US. Um, and this isn't the case in all countries. So this is not the case in Australia from the, the stats that I've sort of seen. And this actual structural, you know, breaking of the social contract is leading to unhappiness and typically coming as popularism. Popularism, um, as I understand it, is the people versus the elites. Um, and so this is the last time popularism was this much was like the 1930s during the Great Depression. So to me, I don't believe that it was really to do with, with World War II. I don't think he was talking about it in there. Um, I don't, you know, yes, you know, Germany committing genocide is not good, but that does not necessarily mean that the US united and they've slowly been structurally against each other after that. I mean, they had many, many things which I think have sort of been through this. To me, the key point is that there has been inequality or, or a breaking of the social contract. Um, the pie has been growing, but it hasn't been being split in a fair fashion and that's causing unhappiness. Mm. Um, and we can get into like so lots of different reasons. So I think the outcome is more polarization. And if this trend continues... We'll have more and more unhappiness and more and more, you know, whatever violence uh, or, or, you know, other things occurring, and we need to try to turn this around. Um, and I think we can. Yeah, no, I, like, um, like we won't go into the the whole um, idea around, you know, how this grew out of the world war and all of that kind of stuff. But like, I definitely think the way in which you characterise that, you know, it's a number of different things in terms of like how. The Western society has grown and how that has not happened in a, let's just say, optimal way has led to some sense of division being sowed among, you know, not necessarily party lines, but more, you know, demographical or, or class as well. Um, so I think like one example of that is kind of like what you were saying earlier, where um, there are people on the left who believe in more fair distribution of wealth, like not fair or equal, but at least more fair. And then there are people on the right who just basically, to oversimplify, say, well, no, capitalism dictates that, you know, you get what you get out of a, um, a free society, basically. <laughs> um, but what I think was also something that helped um, create, like, this, this, this growing sense of ideology was that it, it went from this more reformist and, like, practical approach to politics to more cultural and people started actually identifying themselves as a, you know along political lines so you know it wasn't until around about the 60s um like the way i understood it from what tim urban said where people on the left would actually start to identify as you know you know pro-choice and this was all of um like in rejecting things like the Vietnam War and the way in which capitalism was operating in America to, to that point. Whereas the people on the right were then growing more resentful of that kind of behaviour and saying like, well, no, this is working fine just the way it is. Hmm. I think maybe 
the, the, so he calls it the sick giant, and, and it's a reference to the U.S. Um, and the, as a, the giant being the U.S. as a country, and it being sick as in it's politically more polarized than it was. Um, and I think that there are a number of core reasons for this, and I've sort of written these down. One is inequality from an income perspective has gone up. Two, government policy. Uh, there was a big push towards supply-side economics and away from demand-side economics, which started with Reagan or Reaganism, and it's turning around and sort of the base, I think, was the GFC. The next one is media changes, the internet allowing more polarised media to be pushed out there. Voters' general knowledge, people are consuming less content and they are consuming more polarised content. The way of thinking, uh, which is, are you thinking like a zealot or are you thinking like a scientist, which is, I think, Tim's key contribution in my head. And then there's the specific politicians. Are they uniters or dividers? So I think Trump and Sanders are both dividers. Um, they have different reasons for dividers. One's like the immigrants are doing this and the other's the 1% are doing this. But they've got the same underlying dividing strategy. And then there's uniters. I think Obama was a uniter. I think Mitt Romney was a uniter. And I think it's worth sort of diving into each of these to go through and sort of talk about it. And I think that all of these, or not all of them, except politicians, actually are probably at a bottom and are actually hopefully turning around. So the structural reasons to cause division or polarization should start to turn at this point. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll just anecdotally add it to this point. Um, my own personal belief was that once George W. Bush had finished his term as president, I thought to myself, okay, now we've hit rock bottom. Now everyone knows what the worst case scenario looks like. Everyone's going to grow a brain and get their senses together. And then Donald Trump comes along and just blows everything out of the water. So while I would like to agree that, you know, I think we're at a turning point where things can get better, I can also, in my mind, see the opposite happening and things getting much, much worse. Yeah, I mean, they always can. Um, so I thought I'd just sort of take one. So government policy. Um, the last time there was the Great Depression and that people really had a, a lack of or started to lose faith in the whole idea of capitalism mm. because you had 20% unemployment. And during this time, you had the fall of you know democracies. You had the rise of Hitler. You had the rise of Mussolini. You had the rise of Lenin, etc. Right? Um, and in the US, uh, FDR was along and they sort of you know came and did the New Deal. And so there was a massive change where the government didn't do much to the government did a whole lot more. So the New Deal was things like welfare, healthcare, infrastructure spending. So the government stepped in to play a far bigger role in the economy. So you can say like not much at role, then the outcome was capitalism is broken. How do we do this? Well, Keynesian economics or demand-side economics, the government plays a much bigger role and can create demand. Then you had a sort of increasing percentage of government involvement and that sort of then led to a number of problems, which was stifling innovation versus public sector. And you had the stagflation, which is stagnation and inflation at the same time. And unemployment was really high again, sort of in the late 70s, early 80s. And then people were getting disenfranchised with the system. And then you had Reagan and Thatcher come in and they were said, the problem is government, you know. So instead of government being the solution, which is what they said with FDI in the Great Depression, they said that there was too much government and government was the problem. And then you had the reversal of this. And so you had started to sell off government assets. You had started to deregulate and a whole lot of other things. And you went with the tide going the other direction. And then you had the GSC where you had the banks kind of crash the world from lack of regulation and a whole lot of other things. Mm. And so then it's like overcorrection again. So there's always this kind of trends. And now it's going back to the government playing a bigger role again. And then it'll go this way and it'll overcorrect. And as is the cycle of like, you know, life. And so to me, this is one area. So when the government had more and more control, they were doing more and more things like whatever, paying for stuff, infrastructure, etc. And inequality went down. So inequality in the Great Depression was massive, the government, and then inequality was really lower again in sort of early 80s, and inequality has gone up to now. But then there's a change of the tide away from supply-side economics or Reaganism back towards demand-side economics or Keynesianism. And so I think that that's one structural thing which is moving and in the right direction, and it'll probably go this way for 30 years until it's gone too far again, and then you have government is the problem again. Yeah. So, like, this kind of, like, um, uh, goes back to my, um, uh, I, I guess, poorly worded initial premise about balance rather than which one's right and which one's wrong. Um, to oversimplify in terms of uh, um, how you could view each of these approaches, when you have, um, you know, when you have more involvement from the government side, it kind of, like, ensures everyone gets... A better slice of the pie but the pie probably doesn't grow so much 
Whereas if you have more, um, you know, open market, free capitalistic society, um, then the pie will grow much larger, but it doesn't necessitate, necessitate that everyone gets um, a fairer slice of the pie. Um, but when you have one running the show over the other, then it just runs away with itself. You know, if we if we had an entirely free market, nothing to regulate, um, you know, the larger operators, then you have things like the GFC. If you have an overbearing um, government that, uh, you know, runs its course, then you might end up in an Orwellian society. So to, to the point I was trying to make earlier is that it's not about saying one's good and the other one's bad. I think it's about going to each of the extremes, figuring out that, okay, that's bad, and then coming back the other way uh, like a pendulum and you keep swinging back and forth until eventually, hopefully, you find this balance somewhere in the middle where there's enough government oversight to ensure that society can operate in a harm, in, you know, more, uh, more in harmony but also allow for, um, you know, open markets, innovation, and, you know, if we go with this capitalistic structure, so that it can actually operate in a way that doesn't, um, you know, exploit or, um, you know, allow for people to cheat the rules, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think just from a broader perspective, um, rules, I think most people see like a new law as stopping you from doing something. Mm. And it typically is. But what it should do done well is allow a possibility set greater than what it stops. So, for instance, that we can't drive at any speed means, yeah, it probably takes me, perhaps if there are no accidents, longer to get from A to B, but that it's safer. And so that everything comes along and it's cheaper to get food and I don't worry about, you know, dying on the way there. And so, to me, as we have more and more possibility of things to do, so we've got new technologies I think you need to have more and more rules and regulations. Mm. But that overall, what you want to see is increasing, you know, job opportunity, increasing, you know, actual products you can buy, increasing things to do. And I don't think anyone would debate that versus 20 years ago, we've got more to do. We've got the internet, <laughs> smartphones, <laughs> Netflix, etc. Some of the things, you know, aren't necessarily so great. But to me, what I think you need to do and zoom out is like, is the economy growing? Yes. Is there more jobs than there were before? Yes. You know, are you able to do more than you were before? Yes. Not more jobs per se, like in numbers there are, but actual types of jobs too. And so to me, this is well-functioning. So I, I can't see how you actually have less overall laws. The sort of first version or, first, you know, one of the attempts like was, you know, like religion. There's the Ten Commandments. Now it's wildly more complicated than what they had there. And no, nobody can go at all. You know, there's lawyers that just to concentrate on employment law or company law or whatever else it is, right? But it makes sense. And so to me, I think this sort of weird regulation stuff is actually good and necessary. Mm. And it's not nothing. Like the whole idea of a libertarian economy would actually mean far less done because you're not able to stop the sort of bad parts. So yeah. to me, rules, good, positive some rules, create an increased opportunity set and people don't see that they just see what it stops yeah well um, this to me comes back to the idea of the emergence tower and how people think and operate as an individual versus how do they think and operate um, as a collective uh, so the, 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 these ideas about rules I think is about constraining the individual to help the collective to take your speeding rule for example you know like the fact that you Duncan cannot go 130 kilometers an hour <laughs> from your home to office will constrain you as an individual. It might be better for you as an individual because your chances of killing yourself are a lot less, but it's better for the collective because it makes sure that, you know, if everyone were to drive that fast, we'd all crash into each other and we would not get anywhere. Um, but I also think the other side of the coin here is looking at these through a lens of um, before when you're talking about social contract and things are getting net net better. And I agree that they are, but it's not like it's easy for you as an individual. As a society, it's net-net better. But for a lot of individuals, it doesn't seem that way. So two examples are things like um, home ownership. So I think some, uh, somewhere it said like the median um, house price has gone from four times the median income to eight times over the course of a generation. Um, the higher education has grown something like 800% in the last... Um, 20 years and so while I again agree that we are moving forward as a society we have far more opportunities we have far more wealth 
we have far better health and um, and security and less wars and all of that kind of stuff. But for a lot of individuals, they look around and they say like, hey, I can't afford a home. I can't afford to get an education. I can't do a lot of the things that my parents could do. And so this is where you can start to see where there's a disconnect between things getting better and at a, at a societal level and things seem like they're not they're getting worse or harder from an individual perspective. Yeah, I think this is the core thing. They say this is an oversimplification. Socialists try to redistribute the pie and capitalists try to grow the pie. And neither of them is good at the other thing that the other one's good at. So one's good at growing and one's good at sharing. Um, and you need to have the bell end of both. Mm. Um, to me, all else equal, the pie is much bigger than it was 30 years ago. And so there's no reason that the people, for instance, at the bottom part of the pie couldn't have more opportunities than what they had before. But there have been some structural reasons. So I think the first time we said talked about is government policy it was correcting for something which I think had gone too far in the direction of government control in like the end of the 70s, and now it's gone too far in lack of government control. Um, I think just moving on to the sort of next one would be media changes. Um, so freedom of speech, uh, First Amendment, you know, uh, is something which a lot of people talk about as being important. Um, but first of all, the people that had distribution, like newspapers or TV, you know, channels, had to self-regulate. So they weren't able to say anything they wanted. Like it had to be factually correct. They weren't able to go and do hate speech. They weren't able to go and do libel, you know, to say like slander James. And they had external regulators, right? Mm. But then there wasn't, if you wanted to talk, if James and I want to talk on the phone, there's nobody regulating that because there wasn't actual much distribution. If there's some person on the street corner that wants to yell ridiculous stuff, they could, but they can't get to that many people. So freedom of speech, and this is from Sacha Baron Cohen, doesn't mean freedom of reach. So this means that in the past, whilst anyone was able to say anything, the people that had massive distribution had to self-regulate and were checked, right? Hmm. Whereas now you can go on Facebook or you can go on whatever, the internet or YouTube, and nobody's checking. And so to me, they have mass distribution. Anyone with mass distribution, they can't say straight up hate speech, lies, etc. Um, with you know, in my opinion, there needs to be regulation. <laughs> um, if they want to say it to a small group of people, cool. If you want to say it to a million people, not cool. And so this is you know going to change things. So to me, the rules that worked when we had the old media situation, TV, radio, newspapers, don't actually work when you have people that have unlimited reach. So the same rules that applied to people with massive reach before, so that you have stopped lies, you know, hate speech, etc., need to apply to people with massive reach now. And an example of that being the case is like they're stopping forwarding in WhatsApp. So you can't just forward stuff infinitely. And they've been able to cut down massive amounts of fake news. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so like I agree that the media um, spectrum has had a large role to play in how we have taken a, a, a problem and thrown kerosene on top of it and lit a fire. Because like, I don't think media is the source of the problem, but I definitely believe that they've exacerbated it. Um, and I, def- like, I don't actually know what the level of regulation in the past was, but I feel like that they've done a lot of things to be, I guess, or they've gotten clever in terms of how they can work their way around it. Like The best example I can think of is um, Glenn Beck would always come out with asking very, very loaded questions instead of making unsubstantiated accusations like you know like you know is president obama a muslim i don't know i'm asking questions <laughs> um as opposed to just try and um you know be blatantly misleading but i think one of the things about the media um uh, landscape that needs to be appreciated is what you were just talking about now how the the gatekeepers have completely been uh, disrupted by the new, um, you know, social media, Facebook, um, and the internet as a whole, because no longer has it just been up to a small number of um, media companies who can control the message. But now, like you said, the crazy guy in the corner can find a platform to connect with every other crazy guy in the corner to create a following. And this, to me, creates um, well, it, what it does, it commoditizes the network and now instead you have to find the right audience to push your message and so that's why I believe that media has gone more extreme in order for them to find a more captivated audience. So 
if you look over time, I think humanity's civil liberties have been increasing. We all used to be living in whatever, some lord's land and, you know, we were serfs and you, you didn't get a say, Blebs. you know, you, you couldn't, you know, change your class where you were born is where you ended. Um, and if you were ordered to go to war and fight, then you did. And it didn't matter if they said that so-and-so had done this. You didn't know, you know, you just, you just did. And so we've slowly had more and more civil liberties. Um, and to me, 100% civil liberty. So they say you can optimize towards individual liberty or collective liberty. Individuals like Duncan can do whatever the hell he wants or collective liberty. A country is able to be maintained and it's not going to be taken over by another country. And if you have too much civil liberty, individual liberty, you have anarchy because people do whatever they want, go around stealing, you know, killing, etc. And if you have too much collective liberty, then you stifle innovation a little bit. So to have civil li individual liberty, you need to have collective liberty. This weird thing nested inside of it. You'd have this balance towards this, right? Mm, mm. Even in the US, it was illegal, I think, until 50 years ago to talk out and say, down with the government. Right? This is, you know, the place of free speech, <laughs> you know? And so to me, we actually have too much civil liberty. So the idea that you should be able to have everything 100% to me doesn't work. So that mm. when someone can get on Christchurch, go in Christchurch and go around with a gun and put it on the internet for everyone to see... That's too much civil liberty. When people can get on the internet and push straight lies, that's too much civil liberty. <laughs> and so it used to be with the media that had mass distribution, it, Facebook, oh, sorry, Facebook, <laughs> newspapers, radio, uh, television, that there was a law that they had to be balanced. So they had to not just only show one side, like if there's two presidential candidates, they couldn't just show one and not the other. Mm -hmm. They also couldn't lie and they had to have no hate speech and other things. So now they don't have to be balanced. Nobody checks if they're telling the truth. And they can say straight up inside for like, hey, go and burn down this thing. So to me, we have too much civil liberty. <laughs> not, not too much. The government isn't stifling things. The government's not doing enough to get on top of it. Mm. That Facebook is allowing and YouTube way too much stuff. And so to me, we have new tools that, you know, I don't operate under the rules which we found work for the last, you know, tools of communication, mass communication. And they are causing havoc. And we need to stop them from being able to do that. Yeah, yeah. First of all, um, I agree in terms of there being a an excess of civil liberties. I will maybe point out there is a possible difference between being, a label, being able to go on Facebook and spreading uh, untruths versus going into Christchurch and shooting up people with a live camera. I don't know if that's civil liberty or just exploiting technology. <laughs> like, it definitely... No, but you're able to do stuff. Liberty is just, what are you able to do? So to me that, yes, one, I would say killing someone's worse than saying, well, I saw so-and-so kiss so-and-so and it didn't happen or something. But the point is that I think we have more civil liberties than we should. Mm. <laughs> and we have too much. Not not trying to equate that those are two are equal. The meta point was that there's too much. No, no it's not that I wasn't trying to say they're equal. I was trying to say that you have the civil liberty to say um, unsubstantiated things online. No one's going to reprimand you for that. I don't think you have the liberty to go and record live a mass shooting because if you were caught and... Um, you would go to jail for that. So I don't. Well, know I think that you shouldn't be allowed to say fake things online. Seriously. I agree. I agree. So I don't think you don't, you don't have the liberty to do either of them. Oh, you well, sort of, yeah. But like, well, I guess what I'm pointing out here, there are two um, things at play here. One is the excess of civil liberty, which I agree with, but also there is the excess of capability that technology has enabled us to do, and that's where I think it's very hard for things like regulation to keep up with. Right. So, um, uh, uh, what's his name? God, I can't remember already. Ben Thompson from Statetory writes really well in how um, the, 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 all of the regulations, uh, well, a lot of the regulation for things like uh, technology companies today are actually based on old ways of thinking when it comes to monopolies, when it comes to um, you know fair trade and, and competition and all that. And so we haven't had enough time to get our heads around this new world order of organizations like um, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, who aren't necessarily monopolies because they've beaten out or because they've um, suppressed all of the competition, but because they've become you know, aggregators in their own right and they just offer a product um, that's superior to everyone else. And so we don't know how to really understand. The other example is with, with Facebook and social media. Like this, this is 
barely, what, 10, 15 years old. We have no idea how to actually properly regulate this um, because it's just something that hasn't been around for that long. So I agree, like we have too much civil liberty. I don't think anyone should be able to go online and just start spreading, um, you know, lies and falsehoods and, um, you know, stirring up hatred and all that kind of stuff. But I almost think like, well, like, what's the answer? We have no idea how to do this properly or maybe we're just still figuring it out. I think we'll sort of always be figuring it out. Um, so to me, one continuum I like is the one between responsibility and reportability. Um, so reportability is like rules and regulations. Uh, and the other one, responsibility, is you figuring it out. Um, and I think it's always a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Mm. Um, there's always new stuff that's invented. And so regulations always lagging. This is not new. Yeah. Um, to me, what's happened is that there was before spare time, if you were waiting for the bus or waiting, you know, whatever, to get a coffee. You didn't have a phone. And so you sort of sat there twiddling your thumbs. But there's only 24 hours in a day. Now we have a device on us all of the time we're awake which can access unlimited content, whether it's text, audio, video. It does not really matters, right? So there used to be not this. There were hours where you weren't doing something or if you did, you just had the newspaper that was in front of you. You didn't have everything. So... There's no more, unless someone can invent a time machine, there's only 24 hours in a day, right? And we already have allocated them all and we have access to everything. So there's not some sort of data bottleneck. There might have been 10 years ago. Okay, so now we have access to everything whenever we want. This didn't happen before. Now, there was no regulation around this because it didn't happen before. There was regulation around newspapers. There was regulation around TV. And there's also no responsibility, i.e. self-regulation, about what is healthy food and what isn't healthy food. So we've gone from deficit to surplus, and now I don't. Unless someone invents more hours in a day, they can't. To me, the medium of text isn't better or worse than video. Isn't better or worse than audio. It's it's great text. Isn't you know great content matters. So we're going to catch up with regulation externally and responsibility internally. What is healthy? What isn't healthy? And so when you're given this new tool, you don't actually know how to do it worse. And so this is one of the reasons why I think we're kind of perhaps near the bottom people did not know that the Russians could hack an election. And so Facebook was just caught totally with their pants down. Now, they're trying. You know, I'm not saying they're going to be able to necessarily be able to do it perfectly, but before, they weren't even trying. So we have these new tools which people did not know, you know could be used in such you know, detrimental ways, and now people do know. So this is one of the reasons why I think we're at the bottom. Media changed. It can't change more. We've already taken all hours, and we've already allowed anyone to say anything and you to access everything. It can't get any worse than that. I don't know. Like, let's just talk about new technologies such as deepfakes, right? Now we've got a whole new, um, you know, access level of access to tools that can spread even more diversion and confusion by coming up with videos or fake videos of people saying things that they didn't, right? So I know this is not civil liberty because this is straight out, um, you know, malicious and um, and falsivity. But I guess the point I'm making at here is, so coming back to the meta uh, discussion of media as an exacerbator of this divide, I think we're kind of like what you said, we're always going to be playing catch up. I don't think we've hit saturation in terms of like, just because we've got 24 hour access to information, that's it, we've hit the bottom. I think the nature of the information is going to continue to evolve. I think we're going to move further into things like, um, you know, technology enabling um, fake videos. We're going to have more immersive media such as virtual reality. I think this is going to continue to evolve over time and it's going to quite potentially always be near to impossible for regulation to catch up. So I don't know if it's actually ever going to ha- be the solution is we just simply need to understand the technology that's available to us today and how to police it. I don't think that's going to actually be the solution here. And like, just to you know, be wholly transparent, I don't know what the solution is here. <laughs> but I think what's happening is there is in our nature to try and so divide, fueling the flame of media um, dissension and manipulation. I don't think, um, like, like you said, information on its own is not good or bad it's how people use it so i think it's for people and how we're deciding to approach um information and how it gets distributed 
that needs to be addressed, not how we police or regulate it. Yeah, I think I, I should have, um, I was quite upset at the end of the and I sort of shouldn't have been. Um, to me, the tide has been getting worse. So there was spare hours in the day which have been taken up with smartphones. Now you can have as much information as you want. You're the limit. You're not limited by can you get access to a newspaper or whatever else it is. And now everybody you know, could publish and there wasn't really any regulation. So you know, Facebook now and YouTube now are trying to regulate, whereas before they didn't. I'm not saying it's perfect. So I think humans are understanding the concept of fake news that before they trusted everything because it kind of, you know, the, you trusted the newspapers or more trust, you know, because tr they were regulators and then they saw stuff online and they had probably higher trust levels than they should and they're having to learn to be more discerning. Now, there'll be new tools like fake, deep fakes, etc. But in my thoughts, it's likely that we are turning the tide, that there is going to be getting less bad or better. We're never going to solve this. It's never going to be done. Mm -hmm. But I think... That you know the 2016 election for the you know US was kind of a perhaps the bottom of brand new tools, everyone having access to everything the whole time, and nobody regulating it, and people not even having awareness really that so much stuff out there wasn't true. And mm -hmm. so to me, this is one like government policy. I think is turning from supply side to demand side economics, and that's good. I think that the media thing has changed, and that we have. The platforms trying to regulate and people becoming more aware. There's much more talk and awareness in people. And so I think it's going in the right direction. Mm. And all else equal, I, I hope that this means that this stops becoming as much of a scourge on society as it was, say, three, four years ago. Mm. Well, um, maybe here's an example why I'm possibly not as optimistic as you are. <laughs> um, so you can say a lot of things about Donald Trump, but he is an absolute whiz at the political show, right? He can politicize just about everything uh, and turn it to his advantage, it, or it would seem. Um, going back to, uh, and so what he seems to have done by his way of dividing people is that he seemed to unite people in their uh, dissatisfaction or their, um, their not liking of him. But what we can't seem to even do is unite against a common enemy, even when it's not political. And the example here is COVID. But so you would think a global pandemic would be enough to pull people out of their, um, their, you know, their little bubble and actually come together and, and, and realize that there is a way that we're going to get through this. It's not going to be easy, but we have to do it together. And what we're seeing in you know, some parts of the world is people coming out onto the streets protesting against their, quote, civil liberties being um, taken away because they're not allowed to come outside. So if we can't get, if we can't come together, and I think a lot of, um, you know, the way in which the media is being manipulated or exploited fuels this, then how can we come together on things that are, um, you know, not based in science and survival? I, I'd like to look at it differently. I think we've come together quite well through COVID. Um, I'm not saying that there isn't people that have different points of view, but I think we're all trying to figure out how to help and improve this. You know, there's sort of two sides. From a health perspective, everyone should do social distancing forever, right? From mm. a business perspective, we should never do any social distancing. So the longer you do social distancing, the more businesses and people go bankrupt. And so there are some people that are rightfully like, I need to be able to put some food on the table. So you doing this is causing me to starve. So there's actual health impacts, you know, and other things from doing social distancing. So to me, it's not as clearly cut as this is coming together or not. And I don't think that I don't know what the optimal you know, approach is. But there are definitely different countries trying different things from just not doing any social distancing at all, Sweden, uh, to real hectic social distancing after the sort of were a bit slow China to sort of more middle ground stuff like Australia. Um, and, and which one's right? I don't know. Um, I mean, perhaps we had to tell after the fact, but to me, it's hard to know ahead of the time, you know, exactly what the sort of right thing to do is. Hmm. I thought I'd just touch on one other point. Um, Donald Trump being a political whiz Perhaps. I mean, one characterization I like is that he's willing to lie. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's relatively easy to seem good if you just don't have any regard for the truth. So this doesn't necessarily make him great politically. He just says things that are not true. And he's also willing to divide in a way that's, you know, really 
detrimental for society, but can get a certain portion of the electorate on board. So he comes and he says, you know, Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers. I'm like, well, this is just something that many people would not, you know, be comfortable doing. And I think that Donald Trump is morally unfit. He's also, you know, and many other things to be president of the United States. And I think part of his moral unfitness has allowed him to use tools such as lying, or he just be like, fake news. Like, he just disregards anything that anybody else says and has managed to be able to sow distrust with a certain part of the electorate in the media that anything they say that doesn't agree with their point of view isn't true. Mm. You know, to me, so I think he, frankly, you know, is not operating in a way that is, you know, helping, I believe, improve the United States generally or looking out for the greater good. You know, an example would be going to the Ukraine and saying, investigate my political opponent. Do you know what I mean? Like, he sh- you know, that was, so to me, that's just something that I hope a lot of people would be morally unokay with. But he does this all over the place. And so I don't think he's necessarily a political whiz. I just think he's willing to use tools which I think are morally abhorrent. And unfortunately, some of these resonate with parts of the electorate Mm. Um, and I think that's the key thing Tim Urban trying to do here. He's trying to level up people's way of thinking from zealots to scientists. Yeah. And that zealots can resonate with how Trump, you know, operates, but a scientist would struggle. Mm. Just quickly on that, like, so when I say I think he's a bit of a whiz or a political whiz, I don't mean to say that I think that he's an incredibly in- intelligent person who understands the political spectrum better than anyone and he can use it to his advantage. Um, and I do also agree with your point that a large part of it is that he's just willing to say blatant, blatant falsehoods that no one else would be willing to say, and that resonates with enough people uh, in his base. But what I will try to, I guess, at least point out here is that it started off by him saying flagrant things such as, you know, Mexicans being rapists, that we all thought at the time, well, that that's it, he's gone. Like, you can't just come out and say that and not completely destroy your entire political career. But it didn't. It actually, uh, and and I think what he learned is that as long as he just doubles down on any falsehood that he says, and as long as he just keeps going down this rabbit hole of like creating new things to stoke um, people's attention, he can continue to get away with it. Like I don't think he learned anything other than that from the whole um, Robert Mueller report. But uh, like, we digress. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, so coming back to the, the I guess, the, the resonance that this has that, that Tim Urban's been trying to point out is, you know, we have, <laughs> we have this, this pull between how do we think in terms of scientists and how do we think in terms of zealots? And as long as I feel there are people who will push their own personal agenda and they know that people can, their fear can be stoked by ways of manipulation, um, which is basically encouraging fear, which is what a lot of people utilize things like media platforms for, then it's going to be very hard, I feel, to lift ourselves up into higher ways or more scientific ways of thinking. Yeah, I think that it's probably worth just quickly sort of doing a summary of what is, you know, thinking like a scientist, what is thinking like a a zealot? Um, Because I think this is the sort of key articulation and thing that I've taken from this series Mm. is that I wasn't necessarily thinking about how I should think as much as I was thinking about the outcome. Mm -hmm. And to me, this, I hope I can try to sort of think like a scientist as a default. So they say that there's unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. And I think that it was an area where I wasn't conscious enough about how I was thinking. So was I thinking like a scientist or was I thinking like a zealot? I think I was sometimes thinking like a scientist, sometimes thinking like a zealot. But now I'm trying to sort of be much more, um, you know, detailed on this. So so a scientist, um, this is my sort of summary, is trying to falsify, is trying to see the other side of different views, trying to see where they could be right or wrong. How does this theorem help me? How does it hinder me? Where does it work? Where does it not work? Mm. A zealot is effectively doing confirmation bias. So they are finding the pieces that align with their view and then disregarding any of the other ones that go against their view. 
they are demonizing people who don't agree with them to be bad people and, you know, angelizing or lionizing people that do agree with them. Um, and so they're effectively basically seeing what they want to see, not trying to see the world as it is. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to update their views. They're trying to justify why their view is constantly always right. And to me, I didn't know that I should sort of be trying. I think I thought I was thinking like a scientist until I thought about it and I realized that I sometimes was and sometimes wasn't. <laughs> and so that's what I hope I can do. And that's what I hope that society can get better at as an example. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that's a really nice summary. So um, also to me, what I feel like has been one of the key takeaways from this entire series is not understanding what people think, but understanding why they think the way they do. And I think that can be broken into the two main buckets, which is how people think and how that drives the way or what they think at that time. So thinking like a scientist, when it comes to how you think, it means that you are looking for your ideas to be disproven. You're looking for the best idea, not to corroborate or um, reinforce your own ideas. And so this has a reinforcing mechanism at the collective level, um, something that he pointed out in a couple of chapters ago. Whereas thinking like a zealot is very much towards the individual side of the spectrum. And I feel what he has tried to point out is that at this level of thinking, it's much more aligned to the fire mind, which is thinking in terms of individual survival. Right? I feel like that in order for me to survive, I need to uh, be surrounded by people who think like me. And so that way makes me feel accepted into um, the wider group and that I need to uh, like expel anyone who thinks differently from me because that would be um, tantamount to my own annihilation. Mm. And so what I think Tim Urban's trying to do is shine a light on how that way of thinking doesn't serve us anymore. And I feel like this is where he's going to go in the next few chapters, which is in order for us to move forward, um, and I agree, Duncan, like, you know, I think there is a way for us to move everyone up collectively up the psych spectrum. I think we have to show why thinking like a scientist is to everyone's benefit. And I think once we can do that, once people can see, first of all, like you and me, learn that there is a way to thinking, not just what you think, right? I used to think for a large part of my life, it was just what you knew that would get you um, through life. But no, it would seem it's about how you think as well, which is actually probably even more important. So I don't think a lot of people are even aware of how they think. So I think the first part, which is what Tim Urban's trying to do here, which is to say, hey guys, this has got a lot to do with how we think. Now, after we're aware of that, let's try and show that thinking like a scientist is to everyone's best interest. And that's how I think we will try and start leveling everybody up and move, start to move away from this tribalistic, polarized, ideological mentality and more towards a more harmonious, <laughs> utopian state. That's my summary. All right, so my summary. Um, yeah, I think that if you read this um, series, it's uh, a lot of evidence... Um, now, you know, that thinking like a scientist serves you better than thinking like a zealot. Mm. Um, and I think that in a zero-sum world uh, where there was a fixed amount of berries and, you know, th- what, you know, whatever, animals and that you need to defeat the other tribe, like blind loyalty and then the biggest, you know, tribes that could defend each other, you know, was the right way. But now we are one human, you know, race, climate change affects us all, etc. COVID is, you know, affecting us. Um, to me, I struggle to see reasons why thinking like a scientist doesn't make sense. Um, and I believe that this is something that should be taught at school. <laughs> it's not just oh, math, science, history. Um, it's also how to think and mm. the different ways of these things. And so in some respects, he's made a curriculum, which I think is fantastic. Um, and I believe that I am hopefully better at, better from. Like, I believe that, I don't know, let's just say that it used to be that I was thinking, I don't know, I'm going to be not kind, 50% whatever scientist, 50% not scientist. And that was because I don't think I was as conscious of it before. And now I hope that I'm like 75% scientist, 25% not scientist. But more than that, there are people around me like James who can be like, hey, mate, are you thinking like not a scientist here? 
And I think James caught me out on the weekend. Um, so I'm, I'm not religious um, and I don't believe in God and, and heaven and a hell. Um, and somebody who is religious was saying something and I basically was discrediting what they were saying because of their religiousness, that they were religious, even though what they're saying was actually, I think, they, James pointed out to me there was value in there, but I was struggling to see it because I was like just writing them off like, no, religious, no, therefore not listening. <laughs> um, and, you know, to me that was thinking like a zealot. Um, but I didn't think that. I thought I was thinking like a scientist. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the most zealoty of people uh, think that they're so blind to being a zealot that they think they're a scientist. There we go. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, anyways, enough of this. I think we've got to roll. Um, thanks for the chat, James. Uh, always a pleasure, Duncan. Ciao.